It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning and welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher and host for this morning. And I, for this conversation, will be playing students. There are a number of things that I could ask our next guest. In fact, I have a whole notebook <laughs> when I visited the UN for the first time where I had all of these questions that if I ever met somebody who actually works there or was on you know, one of the councils or something like that, I had like a whole notebook from college of like all of these questions I was gonna ask this person. And, you know, now decades later, I'm not telling my age, but decades later, <laughs> I do have someone coming to the front of the class who actually is a member of the United Nations, specifically a member of the United Nations Permanent Forum on People of African Descent. It is Justin Hansford, who is a Howard University School of Law professor, and he's a member, as I mentioned, at the UN. He's a scholar and an activist in the field of racial justice, human rights rights, critical race theory, law, law, they keep leaving the law part out of that equation in social movements. He's also the founder and executive director of the Third Good Marshall Civil Rights Center at the Howard University School of Law. Welcome to the front of the class for the very first time, Professor Justin Hansford. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. So right. lucky for you, I did not like go to storage and find that notebook just to follow <laughs> those things because our conversation would be much longer than like 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to thank you for accepting and being in front of the class nonetheless. Oh, no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And thank you for inviting me. I'm always, always happy to join a classroom and speak to the the people in the in the world out there who want to who are nerds like I am who just want to nerd <laughs> out a little bit so hopefully we can have a nerd nerd out session wonderful so now i'm going to have you start where we start with every guest mm -hmm. i'd love to hear the story of your first civic action well you know this was a this was a hard question for me you know there were there were a number of times when i was involved in uh, protests, but really my first civic action where I can say that I was part of a, a civic project. And I define that as making my voice heard in my community to create a change that would impact my life and the powers that be in my life. It was actually as a student and a student uh, activist and a student protester in law school, when I was a first-year law student, uh, I was someone who was uh, a bit bored and a bit, <laughs> a bit uh, stressed out in my first year. And I was taking these classes, and I stumbled upon something called critical race theory, which, uh, to my surprise, was a way to understand the law that explored how law intersected with questions of race and power and inequality and social justice. 
And when I was a kid, I wanted to be like Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X and all of these people. And really, critical race theory was a way for me to use the law to create racial justice. So I started to ask myself, well, why aren't we studying this in class every day? Why, why don't we have a study group on critical race theory? So we started a study group. Then we said, well, why don't we start a law journal on critical race theory? Why don't we protest to get the university to create an academic mm -hmm. law journal and a student uh, organization, a, a, a university-funded student organization to study critical race theory? So uh, me and my friends started to have meetings. We started to protest. We, we had demonstrations in the school. Uh, we were very disruptive. Sometimes we would stand up and turn our backs in class. Sometimes we put posters around the hallways to make our demands known. We met with professors. Uh, so to me, protest is really the one of the purest types of political speech that you can engage in. And for me, civic action is when you take that political speech and you organize it in some sort of campaign to try to create some sort of change as a citizen. And I was a, a citizen of this university community and I wanted to see uh, the ideas that I thought were so important for my education and education of other people represented in my institution. And so we fought and we fought. And after a couple of years, we created that student organization and we created that law journal. They uh, still exist today. I'm going to show my age. It's over 15 years later. <laughs> but, you know, it was really empowering. And I think for many people, I'm not sure how often your uh, guests des describe their first experience in civic action as something that happened as a student. But I, I just remember those days, you know, eating slices of pizza, you know, sitting on the floor with my friends, listening to music, planning out protests. Um, also, sometimes reading law review articles together, reading critical race theory articles together, learning together, uh, taking risks together, uh, being, you know, having a sense of care for each other, not wanting each other to be exposed to, to punishment. Uh, so being being very nervous, but being very excited and being very hopeful and being very much uh, dedicated to create change in our community for our classmates, people who we were in the same dorm with, people who were our neighbors, as well as friends. And that that was my education in civic action as a student protester trying to get critical race theory to be uh, entrenched in my university. This was way before critical race theory became such a controversial word that was, you know, to be banned in, in, in five states. Uh, back then, nobody really knew what it was except a few of us eggheads, but we were successful and it was, it was um, one of the best experiences of my life. And so really the reason I'm, I'm still an activist today is because of those early, ex early experiences doing things like campaigning for uh, critical race theory to be adopted uh, in my school as a student protester. You know, 
I, you know, brought you on, obviously, to talk about the UN um, mm -hmm. and the permanent forum on people of African descent. But I would be remiss if I did not, you know, sort of just stay here just for like two minutes, partly because I've always known it to be a conversation you know, and maybe it's just my own ignorance, esoteric exercise in mm. law, mm. right? That that it wasn't something like while I was aware of it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's for like the lawyers to like argue amongst themselves on like something or whatever. Like it had no practical, you know, basis on, you know, what I was doing in terms of policy and legislation in my work, mm. you know, since then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like having, um, you know, read more in sort of more detail about it. But there is that ignorance that even someone like myself, right, who I consider well-learned, well-read, having this view of critical race theory as just something that's in the classroom for lawyers to argue amongst themselves about and not necessarily something that is being as it's being described now as some dangerous fundamental change of American the American you know fabric of freedom and <laughs> you know as it's being described now right well you so know that, that that's interesting yeah I I will I will say that um, it is it actually is more than. Uh, I think many people understood it to be. It came out of protest. It, it was something that was a a project that emerged from um, first uh, Professor Derek Bell's uh, resistance to some of the traditional approaches to civil rights and, and the more liberal understandings of what racism was as an individualistic enterprise as opposed to a systemic enterprise as something that could be cured by being colorblind. And it really came to uh, ultimately be adopted in many law schools, even on an esoteric level as a result of student protests and uh, scholars who were willing to take risks. Um, even Derek Bell himself famously uh, ended up leaving his post as the first tenured professor at Harvard Law School because uh, as a critical race theory scholar, he could not sit on a faculty that refused to hire a woman of color. And he ended, ended his career at, at NYU. So it was, it was one of those interesting projects that is both intellectual, but also based in resistance. And the insights of the, the work um, are not, you know, it's interesting, you know, it's, I think people uh, view it as a legal project because it comes out of law schools, but it was always really focused more on power, law being just one tool for people to use in the project of, uh, you know, giving power to some and taking power away from others. And it was really a project of analyzing how race and power uh, created American society. And it was always about providing historical context to what was taking place so that we could really understand what was going on and not uh, fall for the uh, trick, tricknology, I guess as some people would call it. <laughs> and so that, that was, uh, you know, that was a, uh, the, the point of the project. And in a sense, it's been, it's being vindicated now as public enemy number one to people who are, uh, dedicated to misinformation and people who were, uh, scared to death after 2020 and the response to 
the murder of George Floyd. And the idea was, you know, from a, you know thinking about this idea of praxis, theory and practice, right? If there is a the practice they wanted to stifle, the practice of protest they wanted to stifle, they had to take a few steps back and stifle the theory first because they knew that the best way to keep people from speaking out would not be to wait until they're already in the streets and try to suppress them, but to get them not to go in the streets in the first place and create a, a you know, a, a new generation that was uh, unexposed to these ideas like intersectionality and structural racism. And so that, that in a sense, the, the effort to suppress critical race theory is a vindication of critical race theory and uh, its application being something more than just a, uh, a satiric exercise for legal academics, uh, you know, talking to each other in dusty academic journals. It's, it is, it was something that was designed to be a augment to uh, movements and protests and uh, uprisings and even revolutions. It was meant to be the theoretical groundwork for those, um, those resistance moments. And so that's, uh, but that was the hope of critical race theory, whether that was what it ultimately became was in question. I think some of those concepts like intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw's understanding of how race and gender uh, create in other, so many other points of identity are many, many times overlooked as sites of subordination that intersect. That's one of those ideas that transcended the academy and, and as Black Lives Matter uh, became a household name, so did the word intersectionality, and people started, I think, to connect the dots to critical race theory. So that, so that it's it's a it's an interesting moment. I, I will say there are not many times in uh, my history that I've seen something that go from the academy to you know the the political sphere to the streets. Usually, it's the other way around. A lot of times, academics are studying what's happening in politics and what's happening in the streets and writing about it in dusty law reviews. To be honest, it's pretty rare to have things happening in the academic uh, realms seep into popular consciousness and then seep into even uh, political uh, dis disputes. But it's not surprising because again, we were always, as critical race theorists, we were always connected to protests. And if you want to stifle protests, stifle the ideas that animate the protests, you know, it's, it's part of a, it's part of the um, a plan to try to keep us from being involved in civic action. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. Like when the T-Shot, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the T-Shot? I go let you know. So, I want to move on to what I asked you to be <laughs> on for. <laughs> and to talk about this permanent forum on people of African descent, because this is not that old. Certainly there were movements towards creating this since I think what, back in 06 or 05 or something like that is when the beginnings of creating a permanent forum. So I'd like for you to do two things. One, to talk about the origins of, of this, but then two, to talk about what, you know, what the mandate is for the UN Permanent Forum on People of African Descent. Definitely. So, you know, to be honest, so if, if it goes even back even before that, there was something called the UN Permanent Forum for Indigenous People. 
that was created in the year 2000. And that permanent form of, of indigenous people has, has been around for over 20 some years. They have, they've had meetings with thousands of attendees and they've been able to help to secure the creation of something called the Universal Declaration of Rights for Indigenous People that over 140 countries have signed on to. They created that in 2007. And what, it, what it, they've been able to do through that form is essentially what we are trying to recreate and apply specifically to uh, respond to these unique issues that are relevant to people of African descent. So it is a it is a project that, <clears throat> and in one sense, seeks to to build on this process of creating a forum. The and again, this is these are all like these. these so we're talking about the UN and trying to understand what's <laughs> what some of the things what some of these terms mean. So what is a forum? You know, is this a a uh, you know is it a collection of you know? It's movies? a think tank. <laughs> it's an event. You know, like. <laughs> It's a forum. We go in like it's a club. Like what? Like no. Club, what do you right? mean? Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. Can I get in? You know how, how much do you have to pay at the door to get in? You, you can get into this this forum for free. You know, and it's really a, a think of it as a platform for black people for from throughout the entire diaspora. Um, all of this, you know, six regions uh, under the African Union. So that means the continent, the Caribbean. Black people in Europe and the in the West, everywhere, even in Asia, and it's an opportunity for us to take our issues before the UN. And uh, you know, in 2014, uh, the UN created the Decade for People of African Descent, which was supposed to be a another opportunity for us to uplift our issues. Um, but really, there was not much done in terms of resources provided for the UN Decade. And, um, you know, so this I, these ideas were just sort of, you know, um, you know, laying a bit dormant. Now, we had some other things happening at the UN. In 2001, they had a, a conference in Durban on uh, racism, which was, you know, one of the biggest conferences we've ever had on the issue. Um, but it wasn't specifically for African people or Black people. You have things that have the, you have a special rapporteur on racism. You have the uh, Committee to End Racial Discrimination, CERD. You have all these different things happening. But again, there had not been something specifically on uh, Black people, not just about racism uh, involving Black people, black people, but looking at all elements of our uh, human flourishing and our human rights. And that's, that's when I think about the mandate of this, this permanent forum, that's one of the things that sticks out to me most. It's not just about racism, even though colonialism and slavery and its legacies obviously are some of the driving forces shaping our environments politically and economically and socially and everything else. Uh, but it's also just about access to everything from healthcare, water, uh, education, housing, and whether that's on the continent or in the Caribbean or in the United States, there may be different structural processes that are suppressing our access to these goods. Uh, but whatever it is, whatever's going on, we're trying to solve these problems and provide best practices to governments and to churches and to nonprofit organizations and also allow 
our people to bring their own solutions to the table so our voices can be heard. More, one of the things that's important to keep in mind, it's called the permanent form of people of African descent, not the permanent form for people of African descent. This is that that small modifier is important because it's really supposed to be our voices. I, I'm uh, one of the 10 members that was uh, brought on to be a participant in the sense that I, five of us were elected by the UN General Assembly. The other five were appointed by the UN Human Rights Council. But I see my role not really as a representative, but more so as a facilitator in trying to get the grassroots to, to, to participate. So uh, one of the things, thinking about the mandate, for example, one of the things that we're supposed to do is obtain disaggregated data. Now, what does that mean? I'm trying to find out what is happening with Black people all around the world. One of the things that we, the first things that we did was uh, took some took some of our students, some, you know, I'm teaching at Howard, and I have a class of students working on uh, uh, these issues. And I told them each to go back to their hometowns and collect information on the state of Black people in your hometown, the state of Black Pittsburgh, the state of Black Miami, the state of Black Chicago, the state of Black LA. And we want to measure their, our people's well-being uh, using the measurements of the United Nations itself. The United Nations has something called the Sustainable Development Goals, 17 goals that they say are goals that need to be met in order to have a, a flourishing for a community. And that those are the things I just mentioned, housing, ed healthcare, education, access to environmental justice, access to gender justice, all of these different goods. And so we're finding that even here in the United States, oftentimes these are measures that are not separated out and um, kept, kept, these measurements are not kept for black people separately. So we have to go to the grassroots and ask people uh, what is happening and ultimately give these cities a report card. How are you doing in, in Pittsburgh um, treating black people right on the question of housing, B minus, healthcare, B plus, education, you know, C plus. And so once we gather this information, then we can start to take the next step of trying to find proposals to try to ask ourselves, well, how can we bridge the gap? And maybe the, this is something that the UN can help with. Maybe we can go to the UN for resources. Uh, maybe we can start to put you in contact with other organizers. Uh, I know that some in some of our meetings, we've been able to con connect people with local funders to fund some of their work. So some of the work is grassroots work. And then some of the work is this large international work of creating an international um, declaration of human rights for people of African descent in the same way you had that declaration of human rights for indigenous people that hopefully, you know, with this declaration that we create, it's also going to be signed by over 140 or 150 countries. And maybe these countries around the world will, will later pass laws based on this declaration, like they did for the indigenous people's declaration. I know that Canada, for example, has passed laws uh, supporting indigenous people that were taken straight out of the declaration that this permanent form created. And you, you see that in Canada, for example, they've now given reparations to some of the indigenous people who were uh, forced to be sc schooled in these institutions that tried to 
whitewashed their culture. So they've been paid billions of dollars in reparations. Some of these things, some of these things do work. And so it's a, it's a project that's a, it's a pan-African project. You know, it comes out of um, this, you know, this idea that a, a permanent form could be helpful. It comes out of this idea that we are in the midst of a decade for people of African descent started in 2014. So it's ending in 2024. Not much has come out of this, this decade. After George Floyd was killed, there was a understanding that we needed to do something. And I have to say that there were many African countries and Caribbean countries that really stood up and said, we have to do something, especially in light of what's happening in America to Black Americans with policing. And so we saw the creation of this permanent forum and we saw the creation of a another mechanism to focus on police violence. And, um, it, and this was just begun. You know, I was elected in, in December of 2021. We had our first meeting in, De in December of 2022. So really the launch, you could say, was in um, in Geneva in, on December 5th of 2022. So this thing ex has existed for, I could say, approximately two months. So it's not so it's not exactly the, you know, there's, there's only so much you can say about something that's existed for two months. But I think you that, mean you haven't solved the crisis with all of the countries like in two months? Like two what months, is happening? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like right. you guys need to get on it. Right. Um, right. So <laughs> I, I have a couple of questions. So yeah. let's start first with, you know, where I think a lot of people will be listening to us. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that this is the U.N., where the U.S. decides when and will it would participate in anything. Sometimes I feel as if, you know, the U.S. is like, oh, that's cute. The U.N. is over here doing some trash. Like, we're not involved in it and we're not going to be a part of it. But cool. Yeah, y'all do y'all <laughs> do your little thing. And, uh, you know, we'll all be for peace and justice. So I think for some people, they're thinking, how would this impact us here Will it have an impact or will it just be another pretty report that we'll talk about on the news? Right. U.S. will be embarrassed for a few minutes and then go about its, you know, regular life. Yeah, great question. I, and, you know, when I when I was a kid, I was I was looking up to people like Malcolm X, who always said that, you know, wanted they wanted to take black people's case before the United Nations and the world court and that that, you know, we couldn't really ask for any uh justice from the same people who are creating the, creating the injustice so it only made sense but then over the subsequent half century we saw how the united nations wasn't at least in the united states context uh you know going to be simply bowing down to the un's power now we'll say that in other other countries around the diaspora the un has a lot more power so one of the first answers to that is for Black people in other places around the world, if the UN speaks, their government, the, those governments might listen. So there are min, literally millions of Black people around the world who could be helped, regardless of this idea of American exceptionalism that applies here. But, uh, but secondly, even here in the United States, uh, I don't think it's as simple. I, I, back during the Trump administration, um, you know, we entered a very interesting phase in our history because for, as you were saying, for decades, we've had this idea that the U.S. would be uh, shamed before the world community or, you know, some of these human rights abusers would be shamed. And this naming and shaming thing would be enough to create change. 
And under, under Trump, we saw that the whole shame thing was sort of like out the window. <laughs> so that whole shame philosophy really was lost from 2016 to 2020. And this, so now do we have shame back again? You know, it's it, we're about two years or three years into this. And I'm not really sure that um, that's the baton that people have picked up, at least for myself. I have not picked up the baton of thinking that the UN can be a platform for shaming uh, the U.S. on racial justice issues. I'm more invested, to be honest, in the, the process that I described a little while ago of using this opportunity to bring us together, because that's the one thing we can control. We can't, we can't control how governments respond to U.N. reports and things like that. But if we can use this opportunity to bring bring our communities together, to, to bring all the people working on issues together, to create strategies on a city level, uh, get support maybe from a mayor's office or maybe from local churches or local businesses or other actors on the local level, we can make real, real, real progress. And I, that won't depend on anybody else except us. And that's that's where my greatest hope is. My greatest hope is in the grassroots and in our ability to use this as an organizing tool. It's, I think the international effort to put pressure on governments is really up in the air in terms of how how effective it's going to be, in my view. And again, I know there's there's some there there. People have been successful in the indigenous community doing it. So we can't say right. that we'll never do it ourselves. But I put most of my hope in community organizing. Right. So the next piece I wanted you to talk about is this, these sustainable goals, because you mentioned having your students or having folks go back and sort of use that as a framework to measure their city or their state and how they um, uh, basically giving them a grade and how they are meeting this. And that's a really great tool, just thinking from a legislative and policy perspective, as one of the actions I tell people all the time you can do is give your electeds a grade, give, yep. you know, your governments a grade in terms of how they are meeting the expectations of the, of the people that they are supposed to serve. Can you talk a bit about those sustainable goals and what it includes and, and how they are used? Oh, yes. Yep, certainly. So there are 17 uh, su sustainable development goals. That they're called SDGs. And, uh, you know, some of the things they cover, poverty, hunger, um, sanitation, <clears throat> um, you know, I'll, I know, of course, uh, you know, just institutions of justice um, and climate. Many of these things are, you know, they're thought now, they're, this is a pro and a con, right? A good, and, a good and a bad. You know, they're framed from a human rights perspective. So what that means is, from a from the a good, a good a good part of that is that I think that we're out of the civil rights realm and you're out of the domestic politics realm, and we are doing that thing that we learned from our elders, like you know the the Malcolm X's of the world that moving from a civil rights perspective to a human rights perspective, because these are these are the types of basic elements of life that all human beings need to flourish. And even, you know, I think too often we measure ourselves by, well, what are what is our level of development compared to, you know, other people nearby? But the, tr the truth of the matter is we need to look at ourselves from a global context as global citizens. And I think looking at our issues in the community 
as human rights issues. You know, one of the one of the reasons I got into this is because when I was in Ferguson, when um, Mike Brown was killed, I was just, I was living in St. Louis, and I worked with Mike Brown's mother to argue that police brutality was not a civil rights issue or like a criminal issue, but it was a human rights issue. It was something that uh, it was was a offense to our human dignity. And I think that we have to start reframing our argument to say that we want to use the human rights framework in part, number one, because human rights are more robust. So, you know, under the Constitution, I don't want to get too technical, right? But under the Constitution, you don't have a right to a quality education. You don't have a right to be free from hunger. You don't have a right uh, under the Constitution to be, you know, free to have, a, you know, some sort of sustainable access to, to gender equality per se. But these are rights that you have under these these SDGs and these human rights frameworks. So it's a more robust set of demands that we can make as a, a human rights advocate. You know, I consider myself a human rights lawyer more so than just a civil rights lawyer or just someone who's a, an advocate for, for basic change. So that's number one. I think that it's a positive in the sense that it puts us in the human rights framework. Now, one of the negatives here is that there are other other ways to talk about these issues that are more um, likely to be what our people will think of in the in from the first from just in from an instinctual level. We, some people talk about black liberation. You know, these are not these are not seventeen black liberation goals. Some people talk about abolition. These are not seventeen abolitionist goals. You know, so the, some people talk about anti-colonialism or racial justice. There, you know, some anti-racism, right? There are other ways, other frameworks that our people have used that perhaps speak more directly to our unique experience. And uh, this this framework is not that. And um, as someone myself who is a Pan-Africanist, that's a that's a severe limitation. So I try to inject that discourse into the discourse around our sustainable development goals. But to be honest, the, the, the SDGs come up short in discussions around racial justice. This October, or, th or maybe September or October, there's going to be a revisiting of the SDG measurement goals. I think they do this every few years. So there may be a chance to inject racial equality, for example, as the 18th SDG, SDG number 18. That would be interesting, but there, but it's, this is not, you know, um, a a plan for abolition, a plan for black liberation. It's a plan for basic human rights. And although this is all better than our regular civil rights or constitutional plans, you know, it's still perhaps not enough to make us all feel like we're free in the way that we really should be. So. You know, it doesn't, there's no, there's no, nothing in the SDGs that calls for reparations. I believe in reparations. There's nothing. In right. The, so that's, that's a limitation of the SDGs. And I want to acknowledge right. that. But I think that's a, it's, it's a, it's an important move forward that gets us beyond our traditional measurements because without the, the these measurements, we're just, just playing politics almost. And, right. you know, depending on what way the politic, the political wind blows, that's what we're going to be asking for. Right. And that's similar to, I mean, in this moment that we are in now with a, another Black man losing, not losing, but yeah. having his life stolen, right, by a infrastructure, a power infrastructure, be that in police officers and individuals who participated in that and mm -hmm. in taking his life. 
you know, you also did, I'm talking, we talked earlier about, you know, law journals, but you did do a report, Ferguson to Geneva, sort of talking about using that human rights framework for racial justice and particularly as it pertains to police. And, and, and it really is, I'm actually going to send it to legislators here in New York, the ones that read, because you know, <laughs> legislators don't all read, but the ones who George, read. George Santos is one of your legislators. Too. Right. <laughs> so for the ones who read, right, that that they are actively contemplating, you know, I can share that the, you know, Black legislators here in New York State, both in New York City in terms of the council and also, you know, in our lower and upper house in the state are really contemplating, you know, what are some additional concrete things that they can do in these positions of power in which they hold to address you know, things like police violence, things like, you know, inequities as it pertains to healthcare. And it's a different thing to do, right? Like we've, we're now beyond the point of just celebrating people reaching the height of a particular position. You know, we are now maturing politically in a way of how can I dismantle this infrastructure, this system that is, an, you know, inequitable, and really create something policy-wise, right? Like on the books that can hold to address some of these persistent inequities and using this framework, right? And looking at that so that it's not just, you know, you know, go play basketball with the black kids in the neighborhood and that's going to address, <laughs> you know, police violence, but looking at something real concrete that can be done. Do you see, you know, using that UN framework as a way, as a lens of a way to sort of meet that goal, like where you're not just creating feel good promotional campaigns, but can really make some concrete change. Exactly. I, so, I, so, I mean, you, you get me. I appreciate it. It's good to feel seen, you know. <laughs> you know? I see you, brother. I got you. I got you. <laughs> this, the, the idea that, you know, and I was someone who worked on the Obama campaign, so I wanted to contextualize this. But, you know, I think the days of feeling like exactly as you articulated it, this idea that uh, having black faces in high places is a success or celebrating black excellence. We have some black billionaires and that's success for our community. So while we have these uh, elite accomplishments and achievements, um, even the appointment of a black person on a UN forum or whatever, it's a, these are empty if the, the actual metrics and statistics still show uh, a huge wealth gap in terms of the amount of poverty in our community and all of these all of these indicators that speak to the experiences of the wide population of black people, right? And that's that's what I wanted to do with this focus on SDGs is to ensure, number one, that we're focusing on the experiences of the masses of Black people, and we're not counting individual career accomplishments as victories for uh, a people when they're not. You know, you know they, they, there may be opportunities for political advancement, perhaps, uh, depending on what this individual does with their their achievement, but over, oftentimes individuals, you know, they do their thing. <laughs> that thing may be just like continuing to climb, not necessarily creating that mass change that we want. So that's what that's the that's one of the big things that 
I'm hoping that this will do is to uh, create that consciousness shift so that we can have a more sustained focus on the well-being of our community and the more and a more of a measurement. I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, I, I've never even seen a really comprehensive, consistent measurement of how our people are doing on all of these metrics uh, around the country, uh, just from this, the state standpoint of measuring it, let alone knowing how well we're doing or how poor we're doing. Every once in a while, you hear about the wealth gap. You hear about you hear about the the the, uh, the terrible statistics on incarceration or things like that. But they really use rhetorically just to to make a point. Is very rarely are these metrics used to measure sustainable progress and to, and to put together our plans. And that's that's what you know. That's the the work of leadership. And I'm hoping that this is the type of experience that can get our leaders together. And um, perhaps we can all, after we do a few a few additional cities, we've done 12 so far. You know, I'm hoping to be in and be able to come in person and do some town halls in these cities and get people in the same room with each other. Now that we're, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic, maybe do another 10 this semester, get to 20. And then uh, these cities can start putting together. So the idea is not to get the data just to have the data is to get the data so that there can be a plan put in, right? Get the data first, then you can start putting together plans. Then you can start resourcing those plans. Uh, whether it mean that resourcing comes from the UN, whether that resourcing comes from, you know, companies that are supposedly responding to these racial the racial reckoning, <clears throat> whether it comes from cities, wherever it comes from, whether it comes from the federal government. You know, I don't, I think that the there's a great movement happening around the country around reparations, for example, that's happening right. on the local level. And I think that's, that's where at this moment, that's where we're more likely to get traction is trying to get some sort of plan and response from local power structures, as opposed to hoping that the national power structure will do something in a fell swoop in our political um, moment that seems very unlikely. And what, what is more likely is that we're more likely to have these symbolic moments, you know, people in Congress wearing daishikis or, you know, wearing kente cloth <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and kneeling and things like that. <clears throat> you know that, and then okay, Professor, don't get me started on <laughs> the people kneeling. So I have a whole <laughs> rant that I did here in New York City when the legislators, the the local folks, went in front of City Hall, where they are city council members, and did like a die-in in front. I was like, why would you protest in front of the house that you have power in? <laughs> explain right, to right. me how Absolutely. and like call like you know i was like you're calling me to participate in a like but you have but you're you are like, the big like why are you dying in the place where you have power in right <laughs> don't get me started i can write right. a full-on law journal entry <laughs> <laughs> about you know elected officials understanding their power and walking in that so you know but that's you know that's a rant for you know after five at the at the club stay tuned we'll be right back with more on sunday civics how can it be
It's interesting because it wasn't until, you know, after my fascination and it really started, you know, in college and about the creation of the UN itself Mm. uh, and then following in and knowing that, oh, there's, it's not just people gathering in a room, (laughs) you know, that we see on TV sort of debating things or presenting it, that there is you know, ongoing work that's happening, visitation and engagement and, you know, research and other things that can have some real concrete effects. And I don't think that's something that people are generally aware of because Mm. what we see is the UN is meeting, right? And it's, you know, the room of all of the people and the translators and thing, and people think that that's just the work of the UN, Right, that it's UN week. Everybody comes. They talk. They have a meeting. They talk to each other. They throw shade and great, <laughs> like in great speeches or whatever. Mm-hmm. Somebody, some some dictator or people who per- be perceived as dictators come and give a speech and embarrass people, and mm-hmm. then everybody out. Right, like it. Like there is no ongoing context about some of these things you're mentioning. That you know that there could be researchers like actually in the field and engaging with people to sort of create this. That's it's crazy talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a huge institution, and uh, it's there's there's such a so many different things happening. The worst of all types of experiences, like you described, you know, dictators coming in and posturing. And, you know, these geopolitical Machiavellian schemes being played out, like you see in the movies, that's true. That's true. And then at the same time, you can have the special rapporteurs who are experts in in a, a, a area like torture or, um, you know, um, issues affecting women. Um, and they will be working for free. Like, you know, I'm, I'm working for for free. And they will be visiting places and writing reports and making calls on governments to to shift. And every once in a while, again, like I said, it's, I think here in the U.S. we have uh, sort of a warped view because of U.S. exceptionalism. But it's a there is a, it is a powerful institution where people are able to use that power every once in a while for uh, some positive outcomes. And, uh, you know, think, when people, people think about the U.N., they think about peacekeeping, they think about stopping wars. That's probably the U.N.'s greatest contribution, you know, trying to keep us from World War III. But <laughs> there's a lot of different things happening in these major institutions. And you can use, use, use opportunities to try, to try to make a change. And one thing I said at the first session, which is real, is that, again, it's an experiment. This is something that's two months old. And we're we're trying trying this out, hoping that this can be a different approach to getting what we need for our people. And we and I'm always about trying new things. Uh, it doesn't hurt to try and see what happens. Uh, there, there's even when I was working with Mike Brown's family in Ferguson to Geneva, there were people who were like, "Oh, you know, you just wanted just a free trip to the UN, and you know, you're just there." For- <laughs> and the you know the international or whatever and this is not going to do anything this is a waste of your time and a waste of your waste of our time but i don't think it was a waste of time back in in uh ferguson believe it or not we went to geneva right before the non-indictment happened and during that time police this is when police first were 
who are tear gassing and bringing out tanks and rubber bullets, if you can remember those things. And they there was nobody killed in that uh, response, even though people took the streets, I think in part because they knew that the world was watching and the UN was aware of what was happening in Ferguson because we brought it to their attention. It was in the headlines. So that's also true. That was right. in the press. And they didn't want the bad press. At the time, there were Democrats in office who were who were up for real re-election soon, and they laid off. And you know, so it's, those those are the moments moments like that are real. And you know, I I, I don't think it's the end all be all. I don't think it's a you know necessarily the whole blueprint for Black liberation lies through the UN. I don't th- I don't think that, but I think there are different at different moments. You find different little windows of opportunity, and we try different experiments. And I think this is one that is worth trying because I do think this, at least it has the power to get people together. And I've been able to meet with Black folks. So on our permanent forum committee, there there's the vice president of Costa Rica, the first Black woman to be the vice president of Costa Rica. You've got ambassadors from Kenya and Egypt. You've got uh, black people from the Caribbean and Colombia, and we're talking about issues affecting black people in the other parts of the world, and we're introducing each other to each other's communities and nonprofit organizations, and you know we're we're exchanging plans and ideas about reparations techniques, and you know all these these different things are happening, and it's I think it's a it's a positive good thing to do, much better than sitting at home <laughs> watching, you know some more of these uh, horrible videos that they keep showing about. You know, now it's Tyree Nichols. I mean, it's it's just a situation where, you know, there's so many reasons to be, uh, you know, um, just horrified and sitting back and and paralyzed by the, the pain and the horror. But it's actually something I learned from Mike Brown's mother in this idea of taking pain and turning it into purpose and taking, right. taking your pain and turning it into a project or a campaign taking your pain and turning it into a campaign. And that's what she did, you know, and I think about Trayvon Martin's mother and Sandra Bland's mother and all these people who were able to say that we're going to keep trying things in light of these tragedies. We're not going to sit around and, and just, uh, we are going to grieve because we're human beings and we have our own mental health processes that we have to recognize. And uh, we are going to take care of ourselves, but we're going to be, fighting we're not going to stop fighting and we're going to use every option on the table to fight and this to me this is just one of the options that we're going to use well thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation and we will certainly be engaged in sharing with our audience with our folks like what's going on even though it's two months old we look forward to you coming back when you are visiting cities please share that with us so okay. that those who are listening could you know possibly become engaged and and, and turn out that's the kind of civic action we want to see wonderful all right thank you i really enjoyed this conversation thanks for having me and i'm looking forward to to following you in the future great thank you so much all right And thanks to all of you for listening to Sunday Civics today. Remember, you can still vote for us to bring home that NAACP Image Award for the Outstanding News and Information Podcast. Just go to vote.naacpimageawards.net and cast your vote. 
This is the final week of voting, so please make sure to cast your vote. See you next week. It's cool.